Who is Michael J. Brewer? Well, he is Raphael Warnock's communications director. I come before you tonight as a proud American and as a son of Georgia. My roots are planted deeply in Georgia soil. The Reverend Raphael Warnock is making history, becoming the first black senator from the state of Georgia. The Reverend Warnock says it's an honor to serve in his hometown and he can't wait to get to work. Together we can do the necessary work and win the future for all of our children. I know Michael from the campaign trail covering Raphael Warnock as a Senate candidate in Georgia. He is one of a handful of communications directors of color and one of just two black communications directors in the Senate. So even though Congress made history this year and is the most diverse Congress ever, he's just one of a couple black top-level staffers doing a job like his at the Capitol. Yes, exactly. Wow. Um, So you dug up these numbers of people of color doing jobs like communications director. What did he say when you told him about the low numbers that you found in your reporting? His response was, wow, that's actually kind of more than I thought, Hmm. but not quite enough when you really consider the diversity of the districts that a number of these senators represent. I'm Jeremy Siegel. This is Politico Dispatch. And today... Maya King, who's part of the team behind Politico's new newsletter called The Recast, which explores how race and identity are shaping politics, policy, and power, on how despite significant advances in the diversity of Congress itself, the teams that work behind the scenes at the Capitol remain largely out of touch with the diversity of the areas they're meant to represent. So the 117th Congress is a historically diverse Congress. It's made up of more women and people of color this year than any other Congress in history. You've got a number of veterans as well, a number of people who just represent the same groups and communities that helped to support Democrats in their wins. Vice President Kamala Harris returning here to Capitol Hill yesterday to swear in three new senators, all of them making history. You have her replacement, Alex Padilla, becoming California's first Latino senator. Then you have those senators out of Georgia, Reverend Raphael Warnock, the state's first black senator, and John Ossoff, the state's first Jewish senator. It is certainly a step forward for a number of people who had supported these candidates to see large numbers of people of color representing them in these districts. So despite that progress you just laid out, um, you're reporting that diversity among staffers on the Hill, people like communications directors, like policy aides, is lacking pretty pretty starkly. Um, Can you just lay out for me what you've found in your reporting when it comes to diversity and staffers in the Capitol? Yeah, so in the face of this historically diverse Congress, the disconnect that I found in my reporting and that still largely exists is the staffers who don't necessarily represent uh, the districts that they're working for demographically, especially among top-level staffers, and that's looking at folks like communications directors, Mm -hmm. legislative directors, chiefs of staff. Um, There's only one Black chief of staff on the Senate side, and less than 20% of House chiefs of staff are people of color. 
And so uh, it's certainly an issue that's that's been rather persistent. Again, it is changing and it is um, continuing to improve. Yet the bottom line here is that a lot of these representatives come from very ethnically diverse districts and the people who are helping them craft policies, control messaging, and understand exactly the issues that are that are in play in these districts don't actually represent in large enough numbers those communities. I know this is a big question that that really extends beyond Congress, but what is at the root of of this problem? And like why are we seeing improvements among lawmakers, pretty significant Im- improvements with this Congress, but not necessarily among their staffs? Well, the big thing that I found in talking to people for this story is that really this is an issue not necessarily of unfair hiring, but of a number of barriers to entry. So to join a Hill staff already requires a willingness um, to accept a major pay cut for one. A lot of mm. people start in working for Hill staffs at the campaign level, and that's really long hours, really low pay, and really uncertain timelines. You're not sure how long you're actually going to be working for this person, depending on how well they do in their campaign. So that's one big thing that tends to really limit um, the, the, the backgrounds of these people who can actually go after these jobs. And by background, I mean socioeconomic status and willingness to really take a very low paying job uh, for long hours. It's like the only people who, who can do that are people who have cushions that they can fall back on? Yes, exactly. People who have uh, familial safety nets. And those people tend to skew uh, wider and younger, Mm. just uh, to be quite frank. And then again, if you want to join uh, and work your way up from sort of a lower level staffer and actually you know, join a Hill staff that would require you to move to the Washington, D.C. area, which you and I both know is extremely expensive to live in. Yep. (laughs) Uh, Very high cost of living here. And you and I also are pretty familiar with um, the social norms in this city, Mm -hmm. which really make who you know even more valuable than who you are sometimes. And when you're a young person of color, perhaps you graduated from a non-Ivy League school, you're just trying to break into Washington and break into um, this, this industry, it can be extremely difficult to make those inroads while also trying to support yourself on, again, a pretty low salary, which is uh, common for, for low-level staffers, entry-level staffers. And that's another barrier to entry um, that makes it very difficult for people of color, young people of color, to enter this field, as important as it is to include their voices in lawmaking and in decision making. What sort of effect does it have on lawmaking and on governing and decision making when you do have fewer people of color on the Hill, when you have staffs that don't reflect the diversity of their states and their districts? Well, one thing that I learned and that is that is a, a, a glaring fact in lawmaking is that a number of the people, in fact, most of the members of Congress who are championing legislation are not actually writing the legislation themselves. Hmm. It's their policy directors, legislative aides who are doing a lot of the heavy lifting on actually writing these these bills. Of course, the members 
receive a lot of input from their uh, constituents. But again, a lot of that input is fielded through staffers. And so when you're thinking about policymaking, writing bills, figuring out how you can most, um, to use a word often repeated by the Biden administration, uh, incorporate equity into your policymaking, you would need to include members of the community who are going to be most impacted by these policies. And that tends to be in racially diverse districts, the people of color who represent those communities. And so it's important for those who are helping write this legislation to also represent those communities. I spoke with one expert um, from the Joint Center, which has done a lot of research on diversity among Hill staffs and has been pointed to multiple times as uh, in many ways an authority on this issue. One expert there pointed to the distribution of PPP loans or Paycheck Protection Program loans. This morning, Aid on Your Side is highlighting a flaw lending experts say lies within a federal pandemic relief program. According to the Center for Responsible Lending, the Paycheck Protection Program is hindering businesses owned by minorities and women from getting relief money. Uh, we know that Black and Latino-owned businesses were largely left out in the first rollouts of these loans and that they were among the last to actually receive funds. And we also know that minority-owned businesses were among the hardest hit as a result of the uh, economic downturn caused by the coronavirus. An expert with the Joint Center pointed to that to say, had there actually been more people of color on these staffs to help with the distribution of these loans and understand who needed to be prioritized in those loans, perhaps businesses of color would be better off at this time, at least in making sure that they received their, their funds on time um, and that they received enough to be able to stay afloat. And neither of those things happened in a lot of situations as it relates to the distribution of those loans. And that's just one more recent example. Maya King, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks for having me. Maya King is part of the reporting team behind The Recast, a new Politico newsletter that looks at how race and identity are shaping politics, policy, and power. To check it out and subscribe, go to politico.com slash newsletters or look in this episode's show notes. Also, today... It is day one of confirmation hearings for President Biden's nominee to head the health department, Javier Becerra. According to prepared remarks shared with Politico, Becerra plans to highlight his own family's medical struggles and argue his work as a congressman and California's attorney general have prepared him to lead the Department of Health and Human Services during a global health crisis. Becerra's been a prominent target of conservatives for his support of abortion rights and Medicare for all, and Republican critics trying to sink his nomination have pointed to Becerra's lack of medical expertise, with 75 GOP members of Congress signing a letter on Monday urging President Biden to withdraw the nomination, claiming Becerra is, quote, not up to the challenge we face. Becerra is set to appear before the Senate's Help Committee today and the Finance Committee on Wednesday. And the FDA says that coronavirus booster shots aimed at emerging strains will not need extensive clinical trials. 
On Monday, the agency released hotly anticipated guidance for modifying coronavirus vaccines to tackle variants first found in the United Kingdom, South Africa, and Brazil that are thought to be more transmissible and, in some cases, less responsive to existing vaccines. While the two vaccines already authorized for use in the U.S. are still effective against the strain first found in South Africa, patients produce fewer antibodies in response to the variant, raising concerns about faded immunity down the line. As part of the new guidance, the FDA said trials for booster shots can be narrower than those for the original COVID vaccines, as long as they prove the booster provokes an immune response. Subscribe to Politico Dispatch wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, leave us a rating and review in your favorite podcast app and tell a friend to check out the show. I'm Jeremy Siegel. Thanks for listening.